good morning, church. Love all of you, and I miss seeing your faces more uh, than words can express in this moment. But I trust now. I trust now, even as you're able to uh, lay your eyes um, and you can see me, uh, that by God's grace we're reminded that he's allowing for us to be joined in spirit, to worship the Lord together before the Lord, and indeed to come to another passage of Scripture that we could be edified, that we could be built up, that we could be established, that we could be equipped to face the days that are upon us. And so today's passage is unique. And today's passage bears with it a lot of weight. And so I'm going to pray once more. And if you would pray as well for God's grace, for his provision, for him to be the one who teaches us, I would be very grateful. And so Father, we pray today. I pray specifically on behalf of myself and before our church family, Lord God, that you would guide and direct every word that I will speak. Father, the subject matter of this particular passage of Scripture is, um, is um, heavy. It's unique. It's a passage that um, many would otherwise uh, desire to skip over, but that's not your will. That's not your desire. And Lord God, that's not the principles that we hold dear. And so we believe your word to be authoritative and powerful, to teach us. It gives us what we need for life and godliness. And so, God, we come to your scriptures today with great confidence, knowing that you are a loving, liberating God. And so now, Father, you please instruct us, I pray, in Jesus' name. And all of the church said... Come on, amen, wherever you are. We are indeed in our series called Centered. As you know, I've walked around. If you've been with us, I've been walking around this particular uh, post on the platform for a number of weeks now. And we've been asking this question, what does it look like to live a life with Christ at the center? Just as the sun is at the center of our solar system and, and the planet's orbit the gravitational force of such causes the planets to orbit around it. So too, whatever we place at the center of our lives, it is have the power of the gravitational force, if you will, to pull us in certain directions, to guide us in certain ways. And so now we've made it into the portion of the book of Colossians, which we've been studying together, where now we're answering practical questions. Come on, Christ is at the center, so now how do we live that out? How do we know that Christ is actually at the center? Uh, we've said this, you'll know Christ is at the center because the Bible says when Jesus is at the center of us, our actions will model that. Our actions will reflect that. We call this the fruit to root principle, and so we revisit this. Out of the Abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus himself spoke that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And so even as the root determines what kind of fruit we bear, so too by looking at the fruit can we discern whether Christ is at the center. And so friends, here we've been asking ourselves this question. What does it look like for Christ to be at the center? How do we know? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote this for this section of the book. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 says this. And come on now, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What's that? That's Christ at the center. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called one body, and be thankful. How do we know that Christ is at the center? Keep reading. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You'll know Christ is at the center. Why? Because you'll have a peace. You'll know Christ is at the center because you'll dwell in his word. You'll know Christ is at the center because you will sing songs of praise. And then this, those songs will be used to encourage and admonish one another meaning we'll actually live out the truth that we sing. We'll actually live out the truth that we believe. We'll actually begin to do and to bear fruit in our lives. And so whatever we do, verse 17, in word or deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Come on. What's this passage say? It's simply this. The peace of Christ. When the Lord dwells in us, the peace of Christ will rule our hearts. When we're centered on Christ, the word, his word will dwell in us. When, we're, when Christ is at the center, worship will drive us. Worship will discern our posture in life. It will discern our posture before the Lord. You see, the word of today, the word for today, friends, is this. It's posture. So wherever you are, just say posture. Posture. When Christ is at the center, your posture will change. You see, when Christ is at the center, life becomes less about me and more about Christ. When Christ is at the center, life becomes less about my way and I'm becoming more fixated on Christ's words and what he has to say. You see, when Jesus is at the center of my life, it's less about demands and more about devotion. When Christ is at the center, less Fist pounding, according to Colossians 3, verse 17, and more hand raising. Come on, what's your posture? What is the proper posture? The proper posture, when Christ is at the center, is a humble security. It's a humble security. When Christ is at the center, when we're worshiping him, what can we do before the king but bow and realize how low But at the same time, it's in this humility that the Lord gives us a unique strength. There's strength in this posture. There's power in a humble, secure heart before the Lord. And so, friends, listen, it is hard to feel superior It is hard to demand your own way when your posture is low before the Lord and your hands are raised and surrender to him. It is hard to look down on another and demand our own way when we are all on our knees together before him. Come on, what's your posture? Last week, Pastor Ed showed us what this humble, secure posture looks like in the home. You see, directly following these verses of admonition and putting Christ at the center and allowing these things to happen, he then unpacks what it actually looks like in real life. And so he says this, you'll know Christ is at the center and you'll know you'll have a secure, humble posture. How? Because husbands, you'll be able to lead in your home with a humble, loving, tender heart. Wives, You'll be able to come together with your husband and be able to raise godly children as the word of Christ dwells in you richly. You'll be able to bring that then to the table before your children, training them up in the way that they should go. 
What does a humble posture look like in the home? It looks like where the worship is Christ, where the worship of Christ is happening regularly. What? Children will see mom and dad submissive to the Lord, and so to them will they learn how to obey their parents. You see, when Christ is at the center, this humble, secure posture brings order, and it brings strength, and it brings clarity, and it actually gets us closer to what we want. But it's counterintuitive. And so I ask you this morning, what's your posture? You see, today we move beyond the household, the nuclear family, and we learn how this humble, secure posture relates and how we view one another, how we view those around us. You see, when we have a humble, secure posture, we'll stop looking down on others, and then this. We'll also stop looking down on ourselves. We'll see others, and we'll see ourselves the way God views. Humble posture. Secure posture. The posture that the Lord is going to call us to is a welcoming posture, a dignifying posture, one that does not look down upon another. Question. Have you ever looked down on someone? They don't think like you. They don't act like you. They don't post like you. They don't share some of the things that you share. Have you ever been looked down on? Remember that feeling? You remember how that felt? My earliest memory of being looked down upon? This is in the seventh grade. There's something about that awkward transition to junior high. Is there not something awkward, that awkward transition into junior high, that transition? Like it makes you, it brings us aware of kind of the, the, the politics of, of the world. And I remember uh, this story involves this. It involves baseball and jeans. All right, baseball and jeans. Baseball, jeans, and feeling judged. All right, here we go. I remember uh, having a stellar little league career, all right? By stellar, like I got by, all right? A stellar little league career. I remember trying out in the seventh grade for, I think it was teen or minor. And again, hear me, like my little league team in our division on the wrong side of the tracks, like we were in that division, you know what I mean? And like we were tearing it up there. Like we were like three-time champs. Like so we were bringing a little clout into these tryouts, and I remember kind of coming to the tryouts and looking at all the rest of the kids, and I remember the coach's son asking him, Dad, why does that kid have jeans on? I remember getting through a couple days of tryouts. I actually remember hitting a home run in one of those tryouts. And I also remember not being one of the kids to get an envelope that signified that they were on the team. I didn't think a lot about it at the moment, but my heart was broken. I remember getting in the car and my dad asking me how it went and having to tell him that I didn't make the team. And then I remember, I remember um, another adult asked me about it and he just shook his head, right? He shook his head and he said, Jerry, 
It's not right, right? I've seen you play. It's politics, Jerry. It's politics. Now, come on. In the seventh grade, I had no idea what politics was, but I knew this. It kept me from playing baseball, so I did not like it. Have you, have you ever been looked down upon? Have you ever worn jeans proverbially, proverbially to, the, to that tryout of life where you ought to be like the rest of the kids wearing shorts or baseball pants that you couldn't afford? You see, with a humble, secure posture, you don't have to worry about what the rest of the world thinks. Friends, the gospel brings dignity to every person in every caste. He brings dignity to every race. Listen, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says it so well for us. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Come on, church, how often have we quoted that verse? We've heard it quoted over and over and over again. And today in the book of Colossians, you're going to see that verse lived out. What does it actually look like for there to be neither slave nor free before the Lord? Today we're going to learn to view everyone from a Christ-centered, humbled, secure posture. And so if you're ready to venture into this text with me, maybe right where you are, you would say, let's go. Let's go. Here it comes. Uncomfortable text. Powerful text. When you understand what it's saying. And so the Apostle Paul writes this, coming right out of this household code is what it's called within the ancient literature. He's giving order into the household, and so he says, husband, love your wives, and he gives the instruction to wives and children, and then, without even taking a breath, same paragraph, he says this, verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but wish sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25, know this, for the wrongdoer will be repaid. He will be paid back for the wrong he has done, for there is no partiality before the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It's one of the texts that we would prefer to avoid. It deals with a sad social construct. It's giving instruction over a reprehensible practice called slavery. And too often I've, I've heard and I've sat through messages and I've listened through and we're so tempted to kind of explain away. And even in this translation here it says bondservant, but let me just make it abundantly clear that the direct word that is here is doulos, doulos and it speaks of a slave.
Very often, this particular passage, after we kind of explain away the bondservant part, we move quickly to contemporary application, and we start to talk about boss and employee relationships. And hear me, certainly there's a lot of good application that can be made in how we deal with authorities, even within workplace for sure. And those applications can be made after we understand the heart of the text. Because to skim over it, to kind of brush it away and explain it and then move on quickly to contemporary application is to rob the power out of this passage. And when we do such things, it casts a cloud and a shadow over the Bible. And it kind of puts a seed of doubt in our heads to say, yeah, there is some weird stuff in there. To move past it too quickly, it would force us to miss this opportunity in this moment right now. And that's to say this, slavery, the ownership of another human being, human trafficking is a reprehensible sin before God. Nowhere, friends, does the Bible condone this practice. It is for sure outside the bounds of God's intended order for creation. For he gave, he gave humankind dominion over the earth, not over one another in this way. Sin has led to this practice. Let us not be naive to recognize that it's still being done in the world today. Why would we run past this? And if you're like me, and I think it's a reasonable question, you'd be asking yourself, well, why in the world did Paul not squash it right here? Why in the world did he not just like say, come on? Why didn't he handle it? Why? Why didn't he just blast the practice right here in this verse? Well, come on, here's what we know. Hang with me very closely. Here's what we know. We know this, slavery was an established institution within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a powerful force. The Roman Empire conquered many other nations. We know this from study that um, there were multiple forms of slavery in the Roman Empire as well. Anything from bond servants who would willingly put themselves uh, under, under the authority of another as a, a full servant until a debt was paid to full-fledged ownership of a human being with no hope of being released. What else do we know? It's estimated that 60 million people in the Roman Empire lived as servants. Some have estimated up to 30 to 40% of the population lived amongst the servant-slaves class. What else do we know? We know this. The church was an oppressed minority group itself. Remember, where was the Apostle Paul when he was writing this letter? The Apostle Paul was sitting in a prison cell himself. And so what you have to remember is this. The purpose of this letter was not a draft to the Roman Empire. The church was not in a position to direct their attention to the Roman Empire. What was Paul doing? Listen very carefully. Paul was writing a letter to the church. Paul 
was offering dignity to every person in the church. Paul was teaching each person how to find dignity within a broken cultural system. He was teaching how you can still live within an oppressed, broken world and still be able to live your life faithfully before God, knowing that one day redemption is going to come, one day freedom is going to be, the world's going to be restored, freedom is going to be offered and granted, but in the meantime, how do we navigate this? Oh, friends, why would we, why would we run over this? But you see, Paul didn't only talk the talk and breathe dignifying words into the servant class of his day. You know what he did? He put actions to his words. He encouraged the servant in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. To the slave, he says this, were you a bondservant when you were saved, when you were called by God? Don't be concerned about it. Don't find your identity and worth in that. However, do this. But if you can, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Do you see it? If God gives you an open door, you take it. If God gives you a platform, you stand on it. If God gives you a voice, you use it. And if God grants you freedom, you take it. What else did Paul do? Note this. Paul had a former slave on his ministry team. Paul had a former slave on his ministry team. And if you read the book of Philemon, you'll know that he was a good friend of his, that he, was, he called him a brother in the Lord, that he loved him with all of his heart. But listen, he not only was on his ministry team, but this very passage, this very letter of Colossians, what I want you to note is this. This slave, this man named Onesimus traveled with Tychicus, and he delivered this letter to the church of Colossae. Do you think he would want us to look at this passage in light of where he was? Do you think it mattered to him that Paul was offering dignity to people like him? And so today, in honor of those who served, God's, served God faithfully from the lowest, in honor of those who've been looked down upon, we sit in the awkwardness that we might learn how to live, God, live for God faithfully even if we are living within a broken world. So here's what we have today. Three marks of a Christ-centered posture from the example of a first century slave. Three marks of a Christ-centered posture from the example of a first century slave. You see, when Christ is at the center, when he gives us a humble, strong posture, it enables us to do this, point one. It enables us to honor Christ as our motivation. Honoring Christ will be our motivation no matter what anybody else thinks of us. Honoring Christ. Look at verse 22 and 23 again. He says, Bond servants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. What's Paul saying? Paul is reminding the servant, you matter to God. 
while others oppress you, God sees you. You have a purpose. Be faithful where you are. Don't, he's, he's reminding them, don't find value in what you do or can't do. Don't find your value in that. Find your value rather not in what you do, but who you do it for. And while other, some other human being may claim ownership of you, know this, you belong to Christ. His gospel covers over you and liberates your spirit. That's what he's saying. Paul charged the servant here to not just submit on the outside, but do it on the inside. And I look at that, friends, and I gotta be honest with you, I don't have a category for that in this text. Like, how is it possible? From our 21st century minds, we look at this and we're like, I. No. But for those who had to make the choice, they lived in the strength of Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul was making it clear. Paul was making it clear that God valued the labor of the servant. God was making it clear that not only did he value his labor, but he valued it just as much as he valued the labor of the master. Both were fulfilling the purposes of God, even amidst a broken system. Friends, you see, in God's economy, the ground is level at the cross. In God's economy, we don't measure control, but rather we gain stature through contrition. In God's economy, in God's economy, it's not measured by dollars, but by devotion to him. Friends, I believe with all of my heart that in heaven, proverbially speaking, there'll be servants richer than kings. The point, be proud of who you are. The point, if Christ has redeemed your soul, kneel in the prayer room and stand up tall in the world. What's the point? Honor your father and mother. Be proud of where you've come from. Come on, this, this blue-collar boy, pride runs deep. I'm proud of my parents. I'm proud of where I've come from. I'm proud of the fact that we're not afraid to get our hands dirty. We're, we have a pride. We have a righteous strength about us. But where does it come from? What gives a blue-collar boy the strength to speak about a subject like this? When Christ is at the center, humble strength enables us to move forward in the strength of the Lord. You see, by Paul's response, he's bringing dignity to the oppressed. 
And by bringing dignity to the oppressed, he raises the worth of all society. Come on, friends, don't miss this. By bringing dignity and worth to the oppressed, you literally raise the worth of all of society. It's not a scale where you take some from here and then put it over here, and so now this, these people have less. We, we want to raise the tide for all men. The way we can do that is to speak on behalf of those who are oppressed. And that is exactly what Paul is doing. And you know what else Paul is doing here as it pertains to dignity? Remember what I said about this passage? This is a household code. He's talking about husbands. He's talking about wives. He's talking about children, and without taking a breath, he includes the servants in the household. He includes the servant as part of the Christian home. Look at them as people. Look at them as part of the family. Look at them as, have, as the worth. Look at them as a created in the image of God. Look. If we have to live inside this broken system, then come on, church, treat people the way God sees them. And so we would know this. Master and servant sat side by side to take of the Lord's Supper in fellowship gatherings. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, they were part of the family. And so, Christ-centered posture. Christ-centered posture reveals our heart. It gives us a humble strength to provide dignity to all men, point two. When we have a Christ-centered posture, now this, our hope for living out our purpose in this world will find its inspiration in Christ alone. Our hope in Christ will be the inspiration that we need. Paul says, don't do things for eye service in verse 22. You don't need to posture yourself before men. God's got this. You don't, need to you don't need to try to impress one another or to impress your superiors. You don't need to try that. We don't have to stay late and then send an email after business hours so your boss knows that you're in it to win it. Like, we don't have to. We don't need to be the teacher's pet just to get the good grades. Don't do things for eye service. He's saying, rather, 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 do it for the Lord. Listen, Adam, admiration and that of boys, man, who doesn't love that? Who doesn't like to have their work and their accomplishments, but also their obedience noticed? But you know what? When you were in this caste of society, It'd be easy for your work to go unnoticed. It wouldn't be uncommon for hard work just to be expected. Even good work went without praise. You know what my research revealed about the servant class of this day is this. Many, many of these servants, many of these slaves were incredibly gifted. They were highly educated. They, some of them would literally run the entire affairs of the household. In many respects, they kept the economy going. In many respects, 
We even see this. They were appointed by the heads of households to help raise the children. And in some contexts, they actually did it all. And they did all of this without praise, without thanks. And what is Paul saying? Listen, he may not see what you're doing, but God does. They may not value what you're putting yourself under, but listen, God sees. They may be not giving you the wage that you deserve, but there is a heavenly inheritance coming in heaven. Oh, come on. Hope. How do we get through a broken world? Hope. He's saying here, take heart. Your work matters to God. Take heart. God sees. He sees your work. He sees your oppression. He sees where you are. He knows the desires of your heart. And so for those who serve faithfully and for those who work heartily, verse 24, the apostle Paul says this, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. In heaven, will the servants receive double honor over kings? This life is short. The oppressions of this life will only last for so long. What is our hope and inheritance? Heaven. And so what do we do in between? Uh, Pastor Nate and Pastor Brett are going to come help me now. What do we do in between? You see, friends, I believe that there is power. There is power in looking to Christ as our hope. There is power in recognizing that between here and now, between what I want and what I believe needs to occur, God is still on the throne. When there is an earthly authority in front of me, what do I need to remember? What is the Lord, what is Paul saying here? Even when within a broken system, in this context it was slavery, look past the earthly authority and look to God. Even when asked to do something that you don't want to do, what do you do? Look right over his head and see the Lord. And realizing if this authority is not asking you to do something unbiblical, where's our allegiance lie? To the Lord. Always to the Lord. Will there come a time, has there come time in church history where we must obey God over men? Come on, read your Bible. Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 is abundantly clear. But you know what? There's a lot that takes place in the in-between. You know what the Lord calls us to do? Pray to him. And we're told that the Lord is able to turn the heart of the kings of the earthly authority. And so we pray and we ask God and we patiently wait for the Lord to turn the heart. But you know what? In addition to prayer, God also gives us another provision. It's the provision of a righteous appeal. It's all throughout the scriptures, friends. Come on, let's get some practical instruction today. The Lord calls us to give, to make a righteous appeal to our authorities. It's all throughout the scriptures. 
Nehemiah made a righteous appeal to the king. And you know what happened? The walls around Jerusalem got built for protection. Daniel made a righteous appeal to the king and it saved his life. The apostle Paul made a righteous appeal to Caesar. And you know what? He got to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to one of the strongest men in the world of his day. Why? Because he looked to God first and he made the righteous appeal and waited to see what God was going to do. Now, come on, friends. Who's delivering this letter to Colossae again? You're like, Pastor, where are you getting righteous appeal from this text? Onesimus is delivering this letter to Colossae. You know where Onesimus is from? Colossae. You know who lives in Colossae? His earthly master that he ran from. You know what he's carrying with him on this day? A second letter. A written appeal from the apostle Paul himself to his earthly master saying, I compel you in love that you would forgive him. That you would treat him as a brother. That you would give him dignity and worth and value. For he is a brother and sister in the Lord. Come on, friends. Why would we run past this text? This is everything we need to hear right now. Friends, listen. In the last year, ironically, I've made two righteous appeals to even our governor. In one instance, someone made a righteous appeal to write a letter to the governor asking for clemency for a person who had a criminal history a long time ago but has lived a righteous life before the Lord. Asking that that record would be expunged. That's a righteous appeal. That's taking good action. Even now in these days, a local business owner who was excluded from the next phase of opening believed that he could do business within the bounds that were there. And so he, in good faith, wrote a righteous appeal to the governor. And I had no problem writing a cover letter for that. Why? Because it's the provision that God has given us in these days. Listen, church, we don't have to do nothing, but we have to be faithful. We have to demonstrate that we trust the Lord in all things. And so we pray and we march forward on our knees in the path that the Lord has given to us. Friends, how comforting is it to know that God can work out his will even in the midst of a perfect system, an imperfect system? How good is it to know that God does abolish such practices over the course of time? The church has always been on the front ends of freedom and liberation and dignity. The church has always been on the front end and marching on our knees. Of allowing our freedoms to peacefully and respectfully call for that which we believe is right within our own conscience. 
And even within our own church, I know that our conscience are divided on that. And that's why we call for patience and deference and Christian liberty toward one another in these days. Life is short. Earthly oppression and injustice will not last forever. And by God's grace will be used by him. To see earth look a lot more like the kingdom that is to come. But it's not going to all be resolved until the Lord returns. Verse 25 leads us to the final point. Here it is. In a nutshell, why can we trust God? Why? Why can we trust God in these days? Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality with God. Both the servant and the master in this context is going to be held accountable before the Lord. No one is exempt from the accountability and justice of God. And for those who endure and trust the Lord, a great inheritance, a great inheritance awaits. That's what this text says. And so we march on our knees and we do what we can with the freedoms that, that have been afforded to us with great dignity and respect. Romans chapter 12 says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peace, peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, saith the Lord, which allows us then to move to the final point, and that's this. When we have a Christ-centered, humble, secure posture, we can humbly submit to Christ, and that's our qualification. We find our value, our worth, and our quality, our qualification in moving forward on this earth because of our humble submission to Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What's the point? Everybody's got a boss. Everybody has, everybody's under authority. The bondservant in this text can take heart that God sees, God knows, God's going to hold accountable. Everyone has a boss. I believe it was Bob Dylan that said it best. I guess he sang it. You got to serve somebody. Right. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you have got to serve somebody. We all serve somebody. Everyone serves somebody. And friends, this is a difficult passage. This was a difficult passage to study. This was a difficult passage to assemble. Given the weight of the current circumstances that we're in, it was that much more. I hate the word, even saying the word slavery. I hate what it means. I hate what it represents. I hate the hurt and the pain its reign has had over our world and the lingering effects that it's had in our nation as well. But the reality is this. The Bible says every person on this earth is enslaved. The Bible says every person on this earth is enslaved. We're all serving somebody. Romans chapter 6, verse 20 says this. For you were slaves of sin. You were free in regards to righteousness 
But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? Come on, Christian. We know this truth. We once were enslaved to sin. We once were enslaved to the impulses and the desires of our flesh. And we rid ourselves of righteousness. And we don't want to listen to godly things. And we freed ourselves from that. But oh, now the weight that we bear for the freedoms we exercised but yet became ashamed of now. The verse goes on. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But, but now, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, you become slaves to God, the fruit, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Come on, friends. We're slaves. We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. You'll never be more free than when you place your faith, trust, and you completely submit to the Lord. The greatest freedom, your greatest strength is found on your knees. We get more work done with our voice when we speak more words to God than to men. Everyone matters to God. You matter to God. The oppressed among us matters God. Your worth is not in what you do, it's who you do it for. Your value and freedom in this world does not come in who you are, but whose you are. And if you've surrendered yourself over to serve the Lord as your heavenly master, you will experience the freedom, the peace, and the blessing on this earth that surpasses all understanding. And so, friends, we end with this. Let's let our posture before the Lord be. Let us find a humble strength. Let us find a humble strength before the Lord that he would look upon our generation and be pleased. That we would take a path forward that declares dignity and uses our freedoms wisely. May we make the righteous appeals that the Lord places upon our hearts and may we trust God to do what he's going to do and work out his plan. May the gospel go forward because we have a witness. We have a witness was given to us by God. And so, Father, we pray. We pray for your grace. We pray for your peace. We pray for patience. Oh, God, we pray for clarity. Father, we pray for courage as well. Father, we have great faith. Let us not be driven by fear in any way. 
for those who've gone before us, who've made righteous appeals, they've looked to you. Oh God, and you gave favor. They didn't have to take matters into their own hands, but they did what was offered unto them as a provision from you. Oh God, we look to you. Oh God, convict us of spirit to show dignity to all men and women, to respect those we disagree with, to love our enemies, to offer a hand of peace and extension to those with whom we disagree with. Oh God, would you allow the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ to cover over our church in a way that just adorns the gospel, that a bright light would shine from our fellowship, even while dispersed. May every community fill the light of the gospel upon them. Because a member of this church, because a member of your church is choosing to adorn the gospel with their words and their actions. Oh, Lord God, I pray it would be so in Jesus' name.